We are going to jump into the book of James. Um, we are, it is, it's like, you know, hold your nose, jump in, feet first, here we go. It is a great book in the New Testament, written by, most people believe, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, there were six different Jameses mentioned in the New Testament. There was one that everybody kind of believes was responsible for this book, but Jesus had a half-brother named James who, interestingly, was not convinced that he was the Son of God until after his resurrection. There was something about him being raised from the dead that convinced him that this might just be the Son of God. And, uh, and then he became a real pillar in the church of Jerusalem, so much so that he was kind of like, he presided over some of the, the conversations about what Gentiles need to do to be saved and all of that. It was really significant, um, his role in this. And he became a real stabilizer for the Jewish Christians uh, that had come to faith in Christ. And so he writes this book called James, and it gives a, it is a beautiful foundation for the practices of the Christian life. And it, it, it is full of really good nuggets. If we want to know kind of what the, what the main uh, theme of the book is, it's found in verse 17 of uh, chapter 2. And it says this, this is the King James, it says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. This is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. And so what he is trying to say, so, so you, here you had these Christians that were going through a lot of issues. There was a lot of um, verbal abuse. They were, they were oppressed. There was actual physical sickness in the church. There was discrimination against the poor. There was favoritism to the rich. And he is addressing all of these issues in the church. And he was also giving a counter-argument to those that were saying that the Apostle Paul, who was the missionary to the Gentiles, was saying that, that works are not important at all. And there's a balance here that James is trying to give in regards to the role that, that what we do plays in what we believe. Because if we truly believe, it ought to change how we live is what James is trying to say. So we're going to embark on this series called A Faith That Works. And, uh, and, and let me, let's just jump in here. So, so there's a lot of information as far as background that's going to kind of come out here a little bit. Um, but uh, James chapter 1, let's go ahead and just read verses 1 through 8 here, and uh, that'll kind of get us started. And listen very carefully, if you would please, how he approaches this topic, I mean, he really jumps headfirst into this. So he, he starts off with a really nice introduction. He says this, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that beautiful? That the half-brother of Jesus just considered himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have listed his credentials or his family heritage, but he said, I'm just a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And then he kind of changes thought, but it's still tied to his previous conversation here. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, 
nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like the wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let's look back at verse number one again, if we could. Verse number one says, his introduction, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. It's really interesting that he says that because he's in Jerusalem writing to all the Jews that are believers outside of Jerusalem. Now, how they got there is really interesting. For about 100 years prior to the New Testament being written, between, between before this time, you had different conquerors that would come in and they basically would deport Jews to other parts of, of the known world. Uh, you also had Jews that moved voluntarily for business or for other reasons. And so it's been reported that there were, there were a million Jews that settled in the Persian Asia Minor area. There was another million Jews that settled near Alexandria, Egypt, and about 100,000 Jews that actually lived in Rome. Truth be told, there were more Jews living outside of Jerusalem or outside of Israel than actually in Israel. So he's writing to these dispersed Jews. And I love that word dispersed in the King James. It's diaspora in the Greek. And it has the idea of like scattering seed. So you have these Jews that are all over the known world that he is writing because of the difficulties that they are experiencing, not only as a crisis of faith, but in their interworkings with each other and what it means to be a Jesus follower as a Jew and what that needs to look like, which is what he's addressing here in this whole entire book. And then in James chapter one, verse two, he says, my brethren, <laughs> count it all joy. Really, okay. When you fall into divers temptations. And that's kind of where we are jumping into here. They had obviously experienced much persecution, many trials. They were economically depressed. And there's a lot of reasons for that we don't have a lot of time to go into today. But here's what James is saying overall. And that is that trials should be an expected part of life. We try and do everything we can to ensure an easy life, right? We bubble wrap Everything in our lives so no, nothing pointy sticks us, right? We try to do everything we can to avoid any hardships or any trials. And what he's saying is like, it's going to happen. It's, it's, the, it's, it's a normal part of life, let alone for the Christian. So whether you are a believer or not, you're going to go through some stuff that's uncomfortable. You're going to go through some trials that aren't enjoyable. You just cannot prevent it. Spurgeon said this. He's a famous pastor from, from uh, years ago. He said, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. There is more good that can come out of suffering than, come, than can come out of the good times, which is kind of where we're going today just a little bit. So here's, what, here's what's interesting, right? He said when, not if. So, so, the, so, so not if. But when? It's, it's, it's like, okay, I'm not saying if you ever have problems. He's saying when you fall into temptations, when your faith is tried, not 
if. In other words, what James is addressing here is a certainty. He's saying you will indeed be in trials. So here's what he's saying. It's, it's not only a possibility, it's an inevitability. It is definitely going to happen in your life. So why then do we live as believers as though nothing bad should ever happen to us? Or we are shocked when people aren't kind to us. Or we're surprised that things happen in our life that were not exactly planned. Trials are not an elective course in the church world, in in the Christian life, in the school of Christ. It is a required course. You have to take this in order to get through. And here's the truth, right? If you don't pass the test, you're just going to take it over again. You can't buy coffee for the teacher and get a better grade, although that's how I got through college. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in life. Like you have to, you have to go through some of these courses that are required, even though you don't particularly care for them. It is a guaranteed element of life, let alone the Christian life. Most of us are either in a trial right now, or you just came out of a trial, or you're about to go into a trial. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that just great? Like it's either going to rain tomorrow, or you're all wet now, or it rained yesterday, right? It's just, it's, it's, so, so here's the thing. What do we do with that? So, so if, if it is an inevitable part of life, it is what we're going to experience, then let's not be surprised when it happens. And, and, and I get it, I get it. So, so it may not even be you that's causing the problem. It likely is, okay? Because we all stupid sometimes, all right? It, you're at least part of the problem, let's admit that. But then there are some times when you really were, like it, this hit me out of nowhere, an illness or somebody else's unkind behavior or, or somebody else's unfaithfulness or you just ended up where you are now in the storm and you never saw it coming, But just because you didn't see it coming doesn't mean it's not going to be good for you. Just because you didn't see it coming didn't mean that God didn't see it coming. And that's where the faith rolls in here. So whatever you are going through, though, probably was not as as, as, probably was not as bad as what the readers of this letter would have been going through when James wrote it. Erwin Lutzer said this. He said, "God often puts us in situations that are too much for us." so that we will learn that no situation is too much for him. So trials should be an expected part of life. So let's take the insulators off. Let's unwrap the bubble wrap. Let's just say, okay, God, I'm expecting difficulty. I'm expecting to have some issues. Now, don't go around and cause it. All right, it's going to be part of life anyway. So I might no. It's I'm just I'm just letting you know that sometimes we we feel sorry for ourselves, and we're like, how come this stuff always happens to me? Now there could be a common element there of you. You could be the common denominator of all the bad stuff happening. So there's 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 part of that and how we behave and how we react. But to be honest with you, it just happens to all of us. Stuff happens to all of us. So here's here's another thing. These trials, what James is telling us, should produce joy in our lives. So he says here, count it all joy. Or your Bible may say, consider it all joy. What an odd thing to say. 
Like I'm supposed to take a look at the stuff that's happening to me and I'm supposed to count that as something I can be happy about, something that I am joyful about. In my opinion, that command there is one of the most difficult in the Bible. It ranks right there with in everything give thanks. Really? Everything? Everything. Wow. The things are going through my mind right now. Like there's a lot of things that I'm not really all that, but in everything give thanks. These are tough commands. But what, what, so God's not trying to frustrate us. God's not trying to defeat us. God is trying to conform us. He's not trying to give you a hard time. He's trying to make you who you need to become. I love this. God wastes no circumstance or adversity. He wastes no affliction or sickness or success. No failure. Everything can be used to achieve his end. Everything is potentially useful. Now, James is not saying that the trials themselves are joyful. Please understand. And it's not like God is rejoicing because somebody misbehaved or hurt you. And he's not happy about the cancer. That's not what James is saying. I think what James is saying here is that, is that those trials are a means to an end which is joyful. Right? So you, you're in the trial now. And you're forward thinking, all right? So, so this is not fun. I am not enjoying this part of my life right now. I'm not rejoicing in what's happening. I'm able to rejoice in this moment of my life because I am forward thinking, I'm considering that it's going to turn out better than what I am feeling right now. So like, in other words, I have a future-focused mindset because we know that this trial in the hands of a good and loving father is not without value. So the value that I'm going to gain on the other side of this storm is greater than the suffering I'm going through. I know that's tough, but that's how we joy in the trial. So rejoice Always count it all joy because of what's going to happen. So that brings me to this. Here's the, and this is the big moment. This is the big moment because this was my most exciting find. The connection between the trial and the joy is purpose. That did not have anywhere near the impact I thought it was going to. All right. We're going to try that again because this is, like, this is like the big pivotal moment of my message here, people. We're losing it. So as I'm working on this and I'm discovering this, the, 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 the connection, the connection between the trial that I'm going through and the joy I'm going to experience is, is the purpose in it. All right, that was much better. Okay, thank you. All right, that's what, I, okay, we're done. Okay, I feel really good. It's like we feel, we feel like this is all we see is the trial. But the connect, how I have joy in the trial is knowing that there is a purpose. So how I get from being miserable 
to being joyful is knowing that there's a connection to the purpose God had in it. But now here's the truth. Time reveals that eventually. And how many things do we look back in our life and say, yeah, I didn't get to do that, but it really was best. And sometimes you still don't know. Sometimes you still don't understand. But there will come a day when all things will be revealed. And you'll see the beautiful hand of God working in your life. And you'll be grateful. So what he's encouraging us to do is have that type of mindset now. So that word consider, or, or you, you, your Bible might, might say, not consider, but count. That's a mathematical term. The idea is that, is that when you think about it, you're going to come to this conclusion. It has, it, it's, it's two different words put together. One word is the word lead. The other word is the word thought. So you are, when he says consider or count, he's saying you should lead your thoughts intentionally to think the right way about what's happening to you. Do you understand that? So like if you can, if you can stop feeling sorry for yourself, there's a time, I, I get it, we need that sometimes. But when, if, you can, if you can learn how to control your mind and lead your thoughts to a place where you know that your loving Heavenly Father is working this for your good, then you can transport yourself from the misery that you feel to the joy that you want to feel when you understand that there's a purpose behind what it is that we are doing. It's deliberate. You have to do it on purpose. I'm not going to sit here. I'm not going to stay here emotionally. I'm not going to stay in this place. I'm going to lead my thoughts to a place where I can have joy because I believe and have faith that God has a plan and a purpose for what I'm experiencing. J.C. Ryle said this, trials are intended, listen carefully, to make us think. To wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. Settle it firmly in your minds that there is a meaning a needs be, and a message from God in every sorrow that falls upon us. That's the purpose in all of this. So, so what happens, in, there's so many things that happen. Let me give you just two things very quickly here. Trials purify. Trials purify us. Just as the silver smith would have purified the silver by heating it up and then, and then skimming off the top the impurities, he would do that time and time and time again. And, and Francis Chan said this. He said they would do that repeatedly until the silversmith could see his reflection in the silver. And I don't know what God is doing in your life, but if you resist it, if you, if you, if you, if you push against it and don't allow it to happen, don't see the good that can come out of it, then we're not able to see the reflection of God in your life. And people need to see that. Your friends and your coworker and your family, the folks who need Jesus, they need to see this in your life, that, that you're responding in a different manner because you understand what God is trying to make you into, what he is hoping you become. Like that silversmith. You and I should be a reflection of him so that other people see Jesus in our life. The Christian life does not guarantee a problem-free life, Right? Are we okay with that? 
Are we okay with not <laughs> being free from problems? Because don't we do this? We're like, I don't understand why I'm having financial issues. I give. Like that makes you immune from stupid choices <laughs> or a car breakdown. I don't know why that person treats me that way. I give and give and give and, and I work hard and I'm nice to people and, and I ought to get the parking spot close at Walmart. But we think that like for some reason we're earning something good from God. But that's not how it works. What produces the joy, what produces the final product is not a life of ease, it's a life of trials. And that's how we rejoice. Not only do trials purify, but trials strengthen. Just like the athlete has to lift heavier weights to get stronger and work on certain maneuvers or certain body parts to to function better on his team. The athlete stretches himself to improve. The trials of life strengthen and build our character. Amy Carmichael in her book, Candles in the Dark, said this, the best training is to learn to accept everything as it comes as from him whom our soul loves. The tests are always unexpected things, isn't that right? Not great things that can be written up, but the common little rubs of life, silly little nothings, things you are ashamed of minding at all. Yet they can knock a strong man over and lay him very low. It's the little things, the things that we don't expect that we tend to struggle with. And then finally, prayer helps us understand and faith helps us accept. So what I love is, is, is James gets done with his brief introduction, addresses who he's talking to, jumps right in and says, count it all joy. And then he says, patience is going to have, like all these trials are going to work patience and the patience is going to have his perfect work and you're going to become perfect and entire wanting nothing. And then he puts a period on it. Or somebody who translated the Bible somewhere put a period on it. And he jumps into verse 5 and he says, but if you need wisdom. In other words, I know you don't understand this. I know you don't get it. But if you need wisdom, he says, let them ask of God. And I believe this, that God kindly responds to our prayer. But he does say this, let him ask in faith. Right? Let him ask in faith. So it's one thing to go to God crying out, wanting an answer. It's another thing to go to God crying out, wanting an answer, believing that he knows and has your best interest at heart. Because God becomes that anchor for us. And he goes on to say, let that, you know, don't, don't be double-minded. Don't have, don't have, literally it means two souls. Like you are, you're struggling. Do I, do I believe God is really, don't I believe God? It's like you're struggling in your spirit. He said, don't come to God in prayer that way. Have faith that this is something that God is using to make you into who you need to become. A couple of reminders to ourselves, you're not alone in this. Like whatever trial you're going through, you're not alone. And we need people in our lives to encourage us, to strengthen us. But we also need the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Like what I love, so like Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone. When he's going back to heaven, he told his disciples, I will not leave you alone. I'm going to send somebody to be with you. And he said, it's going to be the Comforter, capital C. 
the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, would come and dwell in us. And I believe this, that when, as a nine-year-old boy, I accepted Christ as my Savior, the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches, indwells me and sealed me unto the day of redemption. And his purpose in my life is not just to, you know, prick my conscience every once in a while or make sure I get to heaven. His job is also to comfort me. And you are not alone in this. But we also need each other. Don't go through this alone. You are not alone. The second thing I want to mention here is that we are anchored to an immovable God. Just like the, uh, a buoy in the ocean may, may get tossed around, it's anchored to the ground beneath it and is going to stay put. You might feel knocked around, and the waves of this world and of doubt and discouragement may toss you around, but you're anchored to the one who never changes. And then finally, God can use this trial for our good. Do you believe that? I mean, like, not like nod your head, believe it. But like for your situation that you're in right now, yeah, they did you wrong. Yeah, it's not fair. Somebody else should have gotten that illness. I get it. I don't, I don't understand why it was you. But can God use that for good? Can that, the answer is yes. But do we believe that? That's, faith is the key. The whole book of James is, is about the faith that we have to have in these situations. That's what I'm saying. Like, like in order to be, able to, to be able to count it all joy, we have to have the faith that there is a good purpose behind all of this that God can use for our benefit. Paul said this in verse 3. He said, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. <laughs> like, I, I don't need any more of that, all right? I'm good. But then he goes on to say, but let patience have her perfect work or her perfecting work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. We are supposed to be becoming something that we are not. Here's the truth, that what is happening to us is secondary. What is happening in us is primary. That's what God's after. Amy Carmichael wrote this poem as part of the book that I was reading from earlier about us following Christ. It says this, Hast thou no wound, no scar? Yes, as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? Why would we expect to go through life following Jesus and not experience any suffering. We're following Jesus. It's part of our life. And the Bible says that he died, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. What joy was he talking about? Our redemption. So he was willing to endure the suffering for the joy was that was to come. Are we willing to endure and be joyful in the sorrow because we know there's a greater purpose for all of this? That's, that's the key, that we have the faith that God used your crappy childhood 
that God used your, your abandonment, that God uses your illness, your difficulties for a greater purpose. That's the faith. Have faith that God will work it out for your good. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we are convinced that you only want what is good, even if it doesn't feel like it. But I'm convinced that everything that happens to us can be used for a better purpose. And what happens in us is more important than what is happening to us. Help us to become who we are supposed to be and be okay with it in Jesus' name. Amen.